Hey, we did it. Episode number two. <laughs> we, we finally got uh, through the holidays and, and uh, on the other end of that and uh, we're ready to go. Uh, along with Chad Moeller, I'm Ben Arnett. This is the second episode of MIZ History. We're going to delve in uh, to one of the greatest wins uh, of the Gary Pinkle era in just a little bit. 2013 road trip to the University of Georgia. But first, and we're, we're not going to make a habit of this uh, too often on this show, I don't think, because we're, you know, this is a history podcast and we're not going to delve into current stuff uh, very often. But Chad, you got to go to Vegas with GP for his uh, Hall of Fame induction in early December and uh, just kind of living vicariously through you and everybody else that were on that trip. That looked like it was a heck of a good time and certainly well-deserved for Gary Pinkle. Yeah, it was. It was really, uh, really special to be part of that, uh, part of the program first off, uh, along with Coach, to be there kind of behind the scenes and and by his side and, and in the trenches, if you will. Um, and then it was so, it was such a great deal for the University of Missouri, for the football program, obviously for Coach and his family and friends and, and all the people that worked with him over the years, both at Mizzou and Toledo, um, to see him uh, receive that honor. Uh, it's uh, They say there are millions of people who are associated with college football since it began in the late 1800s, and I think it's 0.02% of them reach the Hall of Fame. And he's one of those people. And it's just, uh, it's really incredible for him. He was incredibly humbled and grateful. And uh, it, it was it was neat to be there with him and, and see everyone uh, from the outside, all the other programs and, you know, all the, the, the different higher ups in college football. Um, you know, they all felt like it was deserved too. And it was really cool to see that for him. And he had so many family and friends and former staff members come celebrate with him. It was like a family reunion uh, for us to be there for those three or four days. It was really fun. And that was the thing that really stuck out to me. And, and you know, coach deserves to be in there for, you know, everything that was done on the field and all that. But like seeing you and Dan Hopkins and Otter and folks like that and photos and realizing, and this was something that, that, that Gary did, um, especially the the last 10 years, whenever I was around him all the time working at Mizzou is he made it a point to make sure that everybody knew that they were important and, and helped add to that. And I thought it was, you know, appropriate that as he's, you know, celebrating the greatest achievement of his professional life is probably fair to say that he's still sitting here saying, well, I want to make sure, you know, people like Otter and Dan who were operations, you know, guys and every assistant coach that could make it and Chad and Mike Alden and people like that. Like he, it seemed like it mattered to him that even in that moment, that was all about him. Other people were still taken care of. That was awesome. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's if you had a chance to work for coach, um, that's how it was. You know, it, I, I don't know how many times you would see on the recruiting circles, a kid would commit to Mizzou or even if they didn't, even if they just talked about the visit that they had when they, they visited the program uh, for consideration, you know, to a man, it seemed like they would always talk about the family atmosphere and, you know, the the atmosphere, the closeness of, of the whole operation and not just one or two coaches, you know, giving them the hard sell. So um, that that's the program he tried to build. And, and I think um, I think the success that coach had, I think you can look at that uh, that culture that he built as being 
you know, a very underrated aspect of, uh, of being able to have that kind of success. And, um, you know, again, I'm just, I was so lucky and grateful to, to be part of it. It was really cool. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are going to be other honors down the line for, for GP, uh, but this was certainly a huge one. And so that's, that's cool to, to, uh, to hear the perspective, but we're, I'll, I'll ask you one more thing about this. Was there any, really special or funny or interesting story or thing that happened when you were on that trip that like we didn't see when the cameras weren't around any, you know, any Gary Pinkle isms that came out or, uh, you know, I know you guys had that big dinner the night before or anything like that. Any fun story? Um, had a chance to meet, uh, you know, a lot of royalty, if, if you would, if you want to call it that from college football history, um, I didn't personally get to meet Barry Switzer. He was another part of the the hall, but uh, I did hear some funny stories from people in our group who hung around him the night before I got there. And I don't know that that's really uh, something we should go into on Not podcast appropriate. Yeah. It's it's secondhand too, so that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's true. Yeah, I, I don't want to hang him out to dry, but uh, he's, <laughs> he sounds every bit as entertaining as you think he might be. This is this is a firsthand experience podcast, so we'll we'll you know gotcha. secondhand stories for another time. Gotcha. And uh, you know, so we're talking about Gary Pinkle, and this is you know, as I said off the top, this is one of the biggest wins, certainly of the the SEC era of his run at Missouri. Um, we'd like to give you the background on this show, so let's jump into it. You know, <clears throat> the importance of this game starts with Missouri going to the SEC, and this mm-hmm. is something that I'm sure we'll do an, an entire show on. But you go back to that announcement on November 11th, 2011. Um, everything changed that day, man. I mean, everything changed that day with, with the program, didn't it? Yeah, uh, it was, you know, I think one of the things that, that coach always said was, Hey, I'm, I'm for this change, but if you're not going to commit the resources to being competitive, then you shouldn't do it. And, and that meant bigger budget, bigger recruiting budget, um, you know, uh, facilities obviously is such a huge part of it. So there was so much that had to go into it. So yeah, the minute that it was decided Mizzou was going to leave the Big 12 and go to the SEC, it was kind of a uh, a reset for the entire athletic department, but definitely the football program and having to uh, look at other ways to make it more competitive. Yeah. And, and you know, people talk about commitment to winning and, and how much money you got to spend and everything like that. I feel like that's a constant conversation in the SEC. But like, if you don't think that Missouri has done that, go back and look at a picture for O Field in, in the fall of 2011. Just like the bill. I'm not saying like try to find a picture of a sellout crowd or something like that. Just look at the building in right. 2011 and look at the building now. Yeah. And, you know, GP knew that he had the ability to to make that demand and say like look this isn't going to work if we don't transform the stadium and transform the program and i mean you look at it now 10 years on uh, he got their attention because that's a completely different building that they play in now than they did in 2011 right and, and you know again getting back to the hall of fame honor i think a big part of his legacy is building the Mizzou program to the point where it was attractive to a league like the SEC because if the SEC had gone through expansion, you know, back in the early 2000s, does Mizzou even get a sniff? And I, and I don't think so. I mean, I, I can't no, tell you that for sure, but 
um, you know, building the program like he did uh, is was a huge catalyst for that move to the SEC because he made it uh, more attractive. Yeah, because because a big part of that was the, you know, the eyeballs that that Missouri brings. And I mean, that was a huge part of the discussion, the lead up to, well, why why does the SEC want Missouri? Well, a big part of it is because of, you know, the two big media markets, the population of the state, six, six and a half million people, St. Louis and Kansas City, and the ability to create the SEC network. That that's that's a big part of it. And Gary Pinkle's success in 05, 06, 07, 08, 09, and the program success, that drew a lot of those eyeballs. I mean, it's it's easy to ignore Mizzou from two hours away in Kansas City if you want to, or in St. Louis, if you want to, but you know, those teams made it impossible to ignore Missouri and, and to me made made the program more attractive. Oh yeah, no doubt. It's uh again, it's I just go back to it. It's part of his legacy and building it up like he did. Um, you know, led to the uh, the SEC looking at Mizzou as an attractive addition. And, you know, it's a league that has not expanded all that often over the years. And it's it's a very historic league. And, and obviously everyone is going to say it's the best football league out there. And uh, we'll see it on display Monday night. Yep. Um, so 2012 is the first season in the SEC. You know, the announcement happens in fall 2011. You fast forward to fall 2012. There's question marks everywhere about, okay, how's Missouri going to fit into this league? Is Missouri going to be able to compete? Um, the first conference game for Missouri is against Georgia in 2012. Um, and given the background on that game, I mean, I, being in the building that day, uh, I was on the field. Uh, I think you were probably going back and forth. Um, as much energy as, as had been felt in Faro Field, uh, in, in, in a while. And that's saying something considering the crowds that were there in 06, 07, 08, 09. I mean, there was, there was a definite feeling in the stadium that day that Missouri wanted to prove something, I would say. Yeah, it was a big game. Uh, you know, you had a bunch of SEC administration there. Uh, the commissioner was there. Um, you know, it was welcome to the SEC and a great contingent of Georgia fans were there. Uh, it just felt special. And um, I, I remember being on the field pregame and just my jaw dropping at seeing the size of Georgia's dudes. <laughs> um, I mean, my gosh, they, you know, they had 320 pound guys that were just nimble and agile and athletic and running all over the place. It was, you know, we, we knew going in and coach stressed going in that the SEC uh, was a line of scrimmage league. And that was a, I don't say it was a rude awakening, but it was a stark um, notice that yeah, you you gotta you gotta bulk up to play in this league. Very a very different brand of football from what Missouri was coming from in the Big Twelve, which no. was you know spread, run and gun, you know revolutionizing football in that regard. When you know once Mike Leach did what he did at, at Texas Tech and it spread around the conference, then around college football. But you know I got to ask you about Sheldon Richardson. <laughs> And this is what everybody remembers from that game is, you know, Sheldon, who is a great defensive lineman from St. Louis on on those teams uh, many years in the NFL since, you know, is, is asked about watching Georgia's game the previous week. And he comments on that, you know, as you mentioned, bigger guys, maybe a slower style, certainly not the same uh, up and down the field as as the Big 12. 
and makes the comment that it looked like old man football to him. Mm -hmm. And when Missouri loses the game, uh, that is what the Georgia fans are chanting. As the guy who was uh, in charge of of trying to make sure things like that aren't said, uh, what's the first thought that pops into your mind when you hear what uh, what Sheldon said, old man football? Uh, again, this being maybe a family type of show, I don't know that I could really <laughs> divulge exactly what I was thinking, uh, putting my head in my hands, one of those things. Um, yeah, you know, it, when you're on the PR side, you want your guys to be robots. And I know that's not great for the media and the fans. You don't want a big robot. You want them to show their personality so people can get to know them and appreciate them. Um, and, uh, you know, you want them to show a personality. And, and Sheldon obviously was not shy about that. Uh, and I love the guy. That's, you know, that's one of those comments that came back to bite us a little bit. But it, in the overall scheme of things, you know, not that big of a deal. You'd wish he would have found another way to say what he was trying to say without it coming across as maybe a little insulting. Um, I'd like to think that he did mean it a little differently. Like it's just, you know, old fashioned, but you know, yeah. old man football, that's what we got. Well, I mean, and, and far more important on that day for Missouri's season than something Sheldon Richardson said that some Georgia fans caught on to was uh, the fact that James Franklin takes a hit. You know, Missouri was win leading this game into the third quarter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, James Franklin takes a hit, uh, injures his shoulder, uh, comes out of the game and that kind of, brought him in and out of the lineup throughout the 2012 season. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Corbin Burkstresser did about as well as he could the rest of that season. But when you don't have your quarterback, that's a big reason why Missouri ends up going five and seven that first year in the SEC, I would think. Yeah, that was obviously a huge deal. But I even point to uh, the offensive line um, going into the season in training camp. I think we had one of our projected starters, um, he was going to miss significant amount of time because of a season, the previous injury. And then I want to say of the other four projected starters, three of them had essentially season ending injuries in training camp. We just got decimated on uh, the offensive line and um, had to play some young guys that were, you know, inexperienced and probably not ready. They just had to get thrown, you know, to the wolves and, um, it was a struggle offensively all year long. And I think it really points back to the injuries and, you know, certainly, you know, coach Minkle himself will tell you injuries don't matter. No one, there's not an asterisk on that five and seven record because of all the injuries. Um, but it's definitely a huge factor. And, and yeah, that was a, that was a tough first year in the league. And I know we're going to talk about it, but um, going five and seven, you know, Tigers have a lot of doubters after the 2012 season and going into 13 and and uh, the way that 13 turned out made it so special because you're able to uh, kind of show people that, hey, that wasn't an anomaly and this is where the program is. Yeah, but it, it helps to explain how Missouri was able to flip that season from 12 to 13 because you have the quarterback issue with, with injuries. You mentioned the offensive line. It was a mess. I mean, Evan Bame is starting games as a true freshman in the SEC mm -hmm. out of position because he came in as a tackle, I think. And by the end of the year, he's playing center. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, and the other thing is no Henry Josie. I mean, you go back exactly. to that 2011 yeah. season, Henry Josie has that catastrophic knee injury. I mean, about the worst that anybody had ever seen in the, in the yep. program. Yep. So you don't have him. Russell Hansborough is – trying to, you know, pick up some of that as a true freshman in the SEC. Mm -hmm. So that was a big part of it. So when people ask, well, how in the world does this team go from five and seven to what they did in 2013? That's part of it. 
Um, let's go ahead and, and, and talk about that season. Because as you mentioned, there are a, a lot of people patting themselves on the back around the country who a year earlier had said, well, Missouri's not going to be able to hang and look what the, look what happened to them their first year. Um, I got to think that had a lot to do with the motivation going into, into camp that, that August. I mean, the guys are hearing that they know that's there. Yeah, you, you're right. Um, there's no doubt that they heard the skepticism out there. Um, but I, I was talking to Bud Sasser uh, this week for a good amount of time, just to kind of jog my memory and, and share some recollections with him. And, and, you know, he, he, he pointed out to me that that team in 13 really learned how to be internally motivated. And again, it's not to say that they didn't hear what was going on on the outside, but, um, you know, they had a really great leadership uh, group of seniors and, and upperclassmen, and they were self-motivated. And one thing he told me that uh, that I I totally believe in looking back now, um, it was a player-led team. And, and those are the best teams that you can have, in my estimation, when it's the guys that are motivating each other, they aren't relying on coaches or strength coaches, you know, they're because they want to, um, they want to be there for each other, right? They're going to make workouts. They're going to make class. So they aren't ineligible. They're going to watch film. They're going to do all those extra things that make teams and, and individuals good. Um, you know, and Bud was adamant that it was just a, a very um, internally motivated, motivated team that, um, that just, you know, came together and took charge. And, and I know those are all uh, generic platitudes, but that's the truth with this team. And that's why it was so successful, I believe. The person from that team that I feel like really embodied that was LaDamian Washington. And he was one of the captains that year. I mean, this is a guy who nobody's putting him on, on any preseason all-SEC teams or anything like that going into to 2013. Um kid who's born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana. Both of his parents have passed away by the time he's in high school. He's living with his older brothers who are who are trying to make sure that that he's able to, you know, have a, as normal a life as possible and, and be successful. But in that non-conference run to start the season, one thing I'll never forget is, you know, Missouri, you know, wins their first two games. They go on the road. They, they they get wins over Murray State and Toledo. Now they're in Indiana, and I know you sit there and go, "Okay, Indiana, you know this is this is not going into you know Happy Valley or or the Horseshoe or anything like that in the Big Ten, but it's it's the first road test. It's a night game, and I can remember Ladamian bringing together the entire offense and giving the most intense profanity laced, <laughs> but encouraging speech to the entire offense. And this is coming from a guy that, you know, the average fan watching that team this that year probably would not have expected him to be the guy that brings the entire offense together and does that. But LaDamian had that ability to connect with everybody on the team, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, You couldn't have asked for a better guy to take over leadership um, than LaDamian. 
Um, you know, when you know his background and all that he experienced, uh, all the trauma he experienced growing up um, and overcoming it and, uh, you know, worked his tail off to improve himself strength wise. Cause he came here. I think he weighed maybe a buck Oh five. If you know, he was oh, soaking, gosh. Wet. soaking wet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, worked hard uh, in every aspect uh, that he needed to. And, and, but yeah, he's just a guy that you follow, you know, there, there are certain guys that they don't even intend to really become a leader. They just, you know, they do their job. And uh, you know, I think LaDamian is just one of those guys that, people follow because he's just a guy you want to be around and and you know you see he he busts his tail for you and you know you don't want to let him down so I, I think he was just a natural leader and a huge reason why the team did what they did that year I think that offense needed him I mean when you look at the defense of that team there were a lot of personalities and there were a lot of characters from Michael Sam to Shane Ray EJ Gaines. I mean, they're control brothers. There, there were a lot of guys on that defense that were not afraid to like raise their hand and say, follow me. And, and, you know, you got Michael Sam singing Motown between reps at practice, <laughs> and, you know, stopping for a second, hitting the tackling sled and then picking up the song and, you know, in between reps and everything. The offense, you know, your offensive stars, you know, James Franklin was not a, you know, yell and scream, rah-rah kind of guy. Marcus Murphy, Henry Josie, these were quiet guys. Doriel Green Beckham was a, a true freshman in 2012. He was not going to be a, a guy to, to 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 give a speech like that. LaDamian was. It feels I, I always I felt like the offense needed him. And and he really, you know, he 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 was the energy giver, I guess you would say. Yeah, I agree with that. Um you're right, looking back, the personalities of a lot of the um, the top guys on the offense were, um, you know, they weren't outgoing rah-rah types, like you said, but, uh, you know, you've got to have a little bit of that. You can't have too much of that and it can't be fake. You know, you can see through a, a fake tough guy, if you will, um, pretty easily on a football team. And LaDamian definitely was not that. He just laid it out there who he was and, and uh, you know, it, it was a great fit for that offense. I agree. Tigers win that Indiana game 45-28. Um, I mean, they jumped to a 14-0 lead and never really looked back. Uh, I look back at the box score, 623 yards of offense. Yeah, that, that was, <laughs> that was a fun that game. game. I remember being a little uptight, just, you know, me the way I was going in, thinking, ah, this could be a, a trap game, if you will. Um, but I, I believe we scored on our first couple, two or three possessions, and it was really not completely in doubt the rest of the way. I, I think – Indiana might have pulled back and then uh, Coney Ely, I believe, had a fumble mm -hmm. return for a touchdown that kind of iced it. But uh, our offense was humming. Um, I, I submit that James Franklin was putting up Heisman worthy numbers going into the Georgia game that we're going to talk about. Uh, he just got off to such a great start. Um, you know, it was really encouraging to see him bounce back from a, a tough year uh, the previous year in 2012. That was a pick six for Coney because it was the play it's where he just six. like there he literally go. burst oh, into yeah. the backfield like jumped he was on the snap and, yeah. down. Yeah, yeah jumped yeah. up. The quarterback threw it right into his stomach, and that was the play where yeah. Howard Richards on the radio broadcast just screams, "Oh!" Like in the middle <laughs> of the play, it was so yeah. it was yeah. so unbelievable. Um, yeah. They they came home. They beat Arkansas State, uh, a team where co-offensive coordinator Eli Drinkwitz uh, is uh, is in the press box that That's day, right. which is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then they they go to Vanderbilt, and this is the SEC opener. Um, 
I was at a Cardinal playoff game the week before, and I remember, you know, got got some tickets given to me and and in in a suite, and here comes Alrabowski into the suite. Uh, Cardinal fans know. Man, oh, Gary. you're in, you're the Mizzou guys. Okay, you know, hey, how, how's it going? Well, hey, I heard they're four and zero. Do you think you think they're going to win this week? And I'm like, well, you know, pretty good team. It's Vanderbilt. Oh, SEC game. I don't know. I don't know. And that was kind of like there were people even in the second year of the SEC that was people were still kind of even going to play Vanderbilt. Missouri mm-hmm. in the SEC. I don't know. It, I mean, Missouri was having to prove it every single week, no matter who it was. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's just a spillover from the previous year and, and the doubts even that there were before the Tigers went into the league that, you know, do they really belong? Will they fit? Can they hang? Uh, and, and you're right. I, I think, you know, again, this team, just from a, a overarching perspective, didn't approach each week, you know, trying to prove people wrong. They knew it was part of the narrative and, uh, you know, talking to Bud, uh, they just did such a good job of putting one week at a time. And I know that's a boring thing to say. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear more, you know, wide ranging um, realities, but that was the reality. They did such a good job of drowning out the outside, focusing on them and making it about Mizzou and, you know, what, what they have to do to be successful um and that's that's what coaches preach you know they love a team that that can do it that way and and they were very good at it took care of business i mean it was a very business-like team that year it was it was and and that was that was what they did in nashville uh there were like eight thousand missouri fans at that game it was the first trip to nashville in the sec um jumped to a 20 to nothing lead james franklin throws four touchdowns missouri has seven sacks in that game this is where everybody looks up and realizes that this this defensive line that has four guys that would go on to play in the NFL, Marcus Golden, Michael Sam, Coney Ely, and Shane Ray. Um, I mean, they're just killing people. I mean, th- mm-hmm. that hesitate to use the term devastating <laughs> as if that's, that's maybe hyperbole, but with those guys, and especially that night, it that did not feel hyperbolic. I mean, they would just do what they wanted at times. Yeah. They, they were game wreckers. Um, and, I think it's hard to to look back at a defensive line we've had, you know, four across that were, um, you know, that impactful. That was, was uh, you know, when, when you when you're so strong up front, and you don't have to bring pressure, you know, you can do so many different things, and it, and it frees up your secondary and the middle of your defense so much to have you know, just four guys that pin their ears back and, and create havoc in the backfield. And they were so good at that. And by the way, Harold Brantley and uh, Lucas Vincent and yeah. a few other yeah. guys are, are in there yeah. as well. Great depth too. Yeah. That, that, that team, you know, again, and we can talk about this at the end, people can have the debate, which team do you want? Oh, seven or 13. Pretty, I, eh. I'd have a tough time. I'd have a tough time with that one. I really would. Um. So here we are. Missouri's Missouri's five and zero. They head to Georgia. Georgia's ranked seventh. This is a Mark Rick uh, coach team. It's October 12, twenty thirteen. It's the the early kickoff at Sanford Stadium. Missouri has gotten some attention. They're in the top twenty five at, at number twenty five. And this is it went back to the year before uh, where it seemed like Georgia would always have a key injury going into yeah. a Missouri mm-hmm. game. 
that that would get Mizzou fans excited. And and this time around, it's it's Todd Gurley, uh, the standout running back who you know eventually played for the Rams uh, briefly when they were still in St. Louis, uh, who is out, and that's getting you know that's getting Missouri fans a little little excited. Um, and it, it, it's it's a sellout crowd of, of over ninety two thousand. And I'll you know people can can throw throw a little heat my way if they want on this. To me, this this was the best environment that I ever went to with a Missouri football team. To me, this was was far better than any Nebraska crowd. No offense, Chad, that that Missouri ever played in front of it, it up there. I mean, this was far better than that 2000 trip to Clemson or, or anything like that. I mean, this was unreal. Yeah, there, it, it was uh, It was just a different level, uh, not only because of the amount of people in there. You know, I'd never been in a place that held that many people and, and every seat's full and they're there early. Uh, it was just really impressive. And you had heard that that's one of the better places uh, to experience in college football and it certainly lived up to and, and even exceeded, I think, anyone's expectations if it was your first time there. Uh, they, it was a, it, it, It's not like we caught them on a – even though it was an 11 a.m. game. You know, that's what you, – when you're on the road, you prefer to get the morning kickoff, right, because the crowd's a little sleepier. The students maybe are still hungover from the night before, right, and they're not going to be quite as loud. And you can maybe catch the team napping a little bit. But, uh, yeah, that was not the case there. It was, uh, it was an amazing – environment it the the environment and, and it's part of its ninety two thousand you know crazy georgia fans they they do a good job of cultivating their atmosphere there and yeah. i remember when we came back the next week and, and everybody you know that would travel to games regularly like like you and i and some of the marketing folks and stuff like that there was there was this whole discussion about like oh you know it was so great and, and, and why was it so great and what did they do and mm -hmm. i remember just saying it's a church service that's what it reminded me of. It, it, it was, it was everybody went in, everybody knew when to be there, mm -hmm. when the service started, what was going to happen, how they were supposed to react, whether it was, you know, the team coming out for warmups or the visiting team running out or their intro video or recognizing UGA or whatever. It was like, People were there to go to the church service. They knew what they were supposed to do. They loved every second of it. And they just, in, in trips going back there, it was the same thing every single time. They didn't change it. I thought that's part of what made it and continues to make it so great down there. Yeah, and, and you know, you use the church and I'll jump on that. Um, it, it is. It's a religion in the South. And we saw it firsthand. Georgia scored first, uh, which is not what you want. But uh, Aaron Murray, seven-yard touchdown pass to Brendan Douglas. But this is what Missouri wants. Uh, in front of that 92,000-person crowd, 12-play, 86-yard drive. And uh, this is what that offense was was capable of. And that felt like an SEC drive to respond on the road. Yeah, it did. Um, able to run the ball, not only when the opponent didn't expect you to, but when the opponent knew it was coming, you were still able to move the ball effectively on the ground. Um, and then just use some great athletes in the passing game. And, and again, the line was strong, whether, um, you know, you're looking to run the ball or pass protect. And, and you had a really hot quarterback in James Franklin that was uh, seeing things well, getting the ball out on time. Receivers are making plays for him. So it's, uh, no doubt having a balanced offense like that is what you want to see. And, and the Tigers displayed that early.
great dual threat James Franklin was. He wasn't just called Frank the Tank because it was a you know funny reference to the movie Old School. He has a five-yard touchdown run uh, with a minute left in the quarter to tie the game. And that's how James broke into the offense two years earlier when you've got a first-round draft pick as Blaine Gabbert running the offense. And James is a freshman. He was that short yardage, okay, can we bring him in? And, and he could be that tank that could move forward and get you three or four yards. Yeah, that was always something that Coach Minkle liked to try to do when he knew he had the heir apparent uh, on his roster from a quarterback standpoint, get them a little bit of experience here and there, uh, randomly in games, get him a series when he could. And, uh, yeah, that's that's what James did during his freshman year in 2011. All right, here we go with the second quarter. This is where Missouri takes over this game. Um, Missouri outscores Georgia 21-3 to in the second quarter. I mean, it was just – momentum flipped and Missouri started going downhill and they wouldn't stop. Uh, started with a, uh, you know, fade in the back corner touchdown pass from James Franklin to LaDamian Washington. Uh, that made it 14-7 Missouri, 12 and, a half, 12 and a half minutes to go in the second quarter. Uh, we talked about LaDamian. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, beat the odds with the, the background he came from and uh, was just, I mean, he was the perfect embodiment of the Mizzou-made you know, moniker and, and, and catchphrase mm -hmm. that Missouri adopted starting around this time. Um, you know, a, 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 another guy I, I have in my notes here that, that we got to talk about, and, and, you know, he's he's not making any any huge plays in this stretch of the game, but he's out there every single play. We, we mentioned the, the defensive line, but, but Marvin Foster, I mean, this is another guy that is, you know, not exactly the first player that people think of when they think of the 2013 team but I know within that group you know Marvin Foster was to the defense in a lot of ways what LaDamian was to to the offense would you say yeah I, th I think that he was uh and it's just it's one of those kind of improbable um leadership uh situations in that uh you know most, most of the time the team looks up to guys who are making plays right and left and, and, you know, you, you want to follow them. And, and Marvin was just one of those guys, you know, you're, you're kind of anonymous on the defensive line anyway, at least in the interior, like, you know, he was a, a tackle, um, you know, you kind of toil in anonymity in that position in general. Um, you don't have a lot of opportunities to make huge plays. Um, and, you know, Marvin didn't start and he didn't have um, a ton of snaps, but, he was just one of those guys that, you know, they knew they could depend on and he led by example and he was um, just a really personable, humble guy, but yet, you know, really fierce competitor. Um, he just kind of had all those intangibles and, um, you know, there's no question that he was a leader in his own way on that team and the guys followed him. He ended up tearing a bicep um, just a few games later against Tennessee. Yeah. And, you know, he only played nine games that year, but that was kind of one of the, the big storylines with that team in the second half of the season was that mm -hmm. Marvin wasn't on the field anymore, but he was still on the sidelines, still a captain. Um, great personality. I didn't know Marvin as well as I got to know LaDamian for whatever reason. Uh, what's your best Marvin Foster story? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't have any one specific thing that's that's going to blow anybody away, but I just remember him being at practice every day after his injury. And, you know, unfortunately, and shoot, we saw that, uh, you know, recently in the NFL, um, just 
uh, just horribly scary situation with Demar Hamlin. Uh, and thank God things seem to be going the right way for him. Um, the point I was trying to get to is that, you know, in the game of football, people are going to get hurt and it doesn't mean it's any less sad or tragic, even though you, you know, things are going to happen. But when Marvin went out with his injury, I remember um, people just being devastated. Um, you know, even though it wasn't a catastrophic thing, it, it pretty much ended his career at Mizzou and people were just really down about that. And, and that really struck me Um you know, the, the mentality in football is, hey, we hate that, but next man up, you know, the next guy's got to be there to to fill in and do the job. Um, but for a guy who was kind of a reserve, you know, if, if you will, um, to see people so devastated about an injury like that, that was just that really struck me. Uh, and I think that speaks to the level of respect that people had for Marvin and, and how much they wanted him around. And so then fast forward, the way that he still contributed to the team is a very valuable member of it was he was at practice every day. And I saw him basically become a coach. You know, he was a, a player coach, if you will, the rest of the way. And, and um, you know, I think he did a great job at motivating guys, uh, keeping their minds right, um, getting them amped, getting them calmed down, whatever the situation called for. He was really good at that. Hey, speaking of DeMar Hamlin, how about the former Tiger who was on this team, Mitch Morse, mm -hmm. speaking very eloquently uh, the other day, um, talking about his teammate and, and difficult uh, stretch that they've gone through. They'll they'll be okay with guys like Mitch around, that's that's for sure. Um, Absolutely. Missouri goes up 21-10 when Marcus Murphy scores on a 36-yard touchdown run. Marcus Murphy, probably an all-time underrated, <laughs> maybe even underappreciated guy. Yep, I mean, absolutely. And that three-headed backfield of, of of Murph, Henry Josie, and and uh, Russell Hansbro was uh, a big part of the success. But here's the play that busts this thing open. Shane Ray, blindside blitz off the edge, hammers Aaron Murray from the backside. The ball comes out, Michael Sam, scoop and score, blows a kiss into the crowd, and, and all of a sudden Missouri is up 28-10 to 10 with 546 left in the first half. Uh, as Kim English would would say, or, or had said the uh, the previous spring when discussing Missouri being up uh, in in Allen Fieldhouse, it was quiet as church in there. And mm -hmm. I mean, Missouri has just, in the manner of what seven minutes of game time, taken this to a three score game, and they completely took the crowd out of the game. That that Georgia crowd was in stunned silence. Yeah, it was, and there, there's nothing better. You, you hear people say it all the time. There's it's fun to win at home in front of your crowd. Um, but man, it, it's a special kind of fun to do something special on the road, especially in an environment like that. And, and yeah, just, you know, to, to feel the energy and, you know, pregame and going into the, to kickoff, um, you just know 92,000 people think you have no chance whatsoever. Right. And then things happen the way they did. And all of a sudden, they're sitting there on their hands and they're, you know, they're thinking, wow, uh, we didn't see this coming. And and that's very rewarding. And, and the team really fed off of that. Georgia, of, co of course, comes back in the third quarter. Aaron Murray, uh, seven yard touchdown pass. That's their second possession of the third quarter. Uh, their next possession bridges over to the fourth. And this is when Murray hits Chris Conley uh, to cap off a, a long drive. They go for two and don't get it. So Missouri remains up 28-26.
but this whole momentum has flipped. Mm-hmm. And this is where this Missouri team becomes so impressive. You know, the year before, Missouri has the lead at home, and they can't finish against Georgia. But this time, uh, Missouri finishes. But going into this next drive, it's down to a two-point game. What what are what are you seeing on the sideline? You know, what's the communication? What's the talk going on, especially for the offense about what they've got to do? Because they not only, I mean, not only is it a two-point game, but this is where any coach will tell you, like, I got to get a long drive here. My defense is they're on their heels. You got to give them a break. What's what's that sound like on the sideline? Well, uh, when you're on the sideline, like I, I had a chance to be, um, you know, you, you see and hear things and um they really try to keep it business as usual. And again, I know that's a boring answer, but the teams that are able to do that are going to have the most success long-term. And again, this team and and these coaches and the leaders uh, at all levels were so good at um, drowning out the noise. And and you had a lot to drown out in that situation. Cause like you said, uh, you know, the place was back alive again. And, uh, you know, it just had the feel of, Oh crap, this is, this is not going well. We got to find a, way to to turn it back our, our direction and um you know it's mostly coaches and and strength coaches and trainers and, and everybody else that's around that team they're they're being encouraging and telling them to hey you got this uh, you know you don't have to be special you just have to do your job you're good enough if you just do your job and I, I think that's the basic message that everyone tries to hang on to and you know you need guys to make plays in key moments and, and we're going to talk about a couple coming up and and they did it yeah, because it got worse on the fifth play of the drive. James Franklin suffers a separated shoulder on a four-yard run. Remind me, is this the same shoulder and a re-aggravation of the same injury he had the year before against Georgia that knocked him out there? Well, I don't know if it's the exact same injury or not, but uh, is the same shoulder. Um, so I don't throwing know if shoulder, previous, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if the, if it had uh, if they were related or if it was just uh, you know completely unfortunate. Uh, circumstance but I would submit there should have been a penalty on that play that yeah. was that was excessive and uh you always kind of felt like Georgia at the time teetered on on that fine line of you know playing tough and and you know going a little extra and to me that one was extra and it didn't get called unfortunately and uh you know obviously that impacted the team for a little bit kind of thing that uh looking back with 2023 eyes and some of the uh late hit or roughing the passer penalties that that you see in the NFL to go back and look at that play which I believe was on the sideline right and had a little body slam element to it as well exactly yep that's that's it so that knocks out so that knocks out James and that brings us to what you're all here for uh Maddie Mock Mm -hmm. the true freshman comes in Missouri's got a third down play, third and six. They keep it simple. Mock keeps. He had a nice little dual threat element to his game as well that Missouri fans would see throughout this season and the next. Gets the first down on a six-yard run. Then you go back to that running game, and so you see, okay, you know, the true freshman's in there, 92,000 people, all the momentum's going against us. Lean on that veteran offensive line and that veteran group of running backs. Josie rips off a nine-yard run, so it's second and one, from the Georgia 40-yard line, and a play that becomes known as Colt 45 is signaled in. Uh, I obviously, I was shooting a camera this game, so I'm just reacting to what's happening. You're down in there. Are you aware this is happening as it's happening, or are you as shocked as the rest of us? 
No, I didn't know the play was called. Uh, I'd seen it in practice, you know, a few times here and there, but it's not like uh, you can spend a ton of time on on a gadget play like that. You know, you have to run it enough to feel comfortable with it and so that the guys know what they're doing. Um, and, you know, when I'm down there, I'm not privy to the calls or anything. I'm not on a headset. So I I, I react just like you do, just seeing what happens in, in real time. Um, but when I was talking to Bud this week uh, to get his thoughts about it all, because, um, you know, I, I believe we came out of a timeout, mm-hmm. um, if that's correct. But Bud thought we came out of a timeout and we're so the guys are in the huddle on the sideline. And um, he said that Coach Hill walked up to Bud and told him, how's your shoulder feeling? <laughs> And Bud, as Bud only exact, Andy could, in the Bud, middle of Bud a two-point game in Sanford Stadium. Hey, Bud, yeah. how's that shoulder feel? <laughs> uh, and so Bud said he knew immediately what he was talking about. He says, "Absolutely, this is the time. Let's do it. I'm, I'm good. We're going to make this play." And so, uh, you know, the coaches do their machinations on the headsets, and they make the call, and they're, they're, uh, you know, the offense jogs back out onto the field. And, and Bud said that Maddie was kind of trotting along with Bud. And Maddie was not unsure of the play because he'd ran it before in practice. But most of the time, remember, the ones go with the number one quarterback. So it's not like Maddie had a ton of reps on that play. And I don't know if he had really any reps on that play with the number one offense either. So um, Maddie, uh, Bud said Maddie was just talking to him, talking through the play real quick as they're jogging onto the field to make sure he knew exactly where Bud was going to be. You know, and Bud told him, hey, because uh, we went in a quad formation, I believe, with four receivers split to the right. Um, yeah. So, to, so, so to, let's to set the so play up. So let's set this up. So so for folks yeah. who, you know, younger, younger fans who who didn't watch this game live or or, or not, it's, you know, it's 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 a, uh, you know, shotgun snap to Maddie as Missouri was running almost everything out of the shotgun as you see all the time today. Uh, Matty Mock swings it out to, to to Bud Sasser on the far edge from the, the TV camera side. Sasser throws a high arcing rainbow of a pass down the sideline, 40 yards to LaDamian Washington. And it just drops right into Washington's hands in the end zone to extend the lead to 34-26. So, so now let's go back to where you're at. They're, they're getting ready to call this play. And, and this is Matty Mock's fourth college pass play I, I don't remember him getting in really at all in the first five games um and and bud the senior who's gonna have to actually throw this thing on the back end is trying to walk him through hey remember this is how we do it mm-hmm. yeah and it's again it's not that maddie didn't know what was going on it was just obviously a very high pressure situation um you know he had to have some butterflies you know floating around in that precise situation um and it was nice that he could rely on a veteran offense to kind of help him through that situation um yeah and bud said they were just they were talking as as quickly as they could in just the span of seconds as they're taking the field back that uh bud was just telling them okay i'm just taking a couple of steps back you don't have to throw it 10 yards behind the line right but it's got to be a lateral and that's the the main thing bud was reminding him it's got to be behind the line of scrimmage so we can fake a run, fake a screen, whatever, and then I'm able to throw it. So um, the guys that he had out there with him, Bud, Bud was the trail guy, and you had Marcus Lucas, you had Jimmy Hunt, and then you had LaDamian Washington all on that side. And the play is designed to make the to suck the defense in, 
make them think it's a little screen pass and he's got blockers out in front of him, right? Um, but the blockers are there to protect uh, Bud so he has time to make a pass as LaDamian's matriculating downfield. Why Bud Sasser? Because it's not like he, he didn't play quarterback in high school that I'm aware of. I, I don't know that he played quarterback anywhere other than like maybe recess before he throws this pass. Why, why Bud, do you think? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I can't tell you the exact answer how it came to be, Bud. But uh, uh, when coaches are drawing up potential plays, you know, they're going to watch guys throwing the ball in practice, whether it's a, an actual play or just messing around or whatever. And, and Bud always had a good arm. And uh, obviously they they uh, trusted him in that situation to to not only make the throw, but to be uh, wise enough uh, to know, hey, it's not there. I'm going to either throw this away or, you know, um, run it, see what it, you can get. Yeah, yeah tuck, tuck it and run and get as much as I can. So that that's part of it, too. Not just a guy who can make a throw, but a guy that you trust with the ball in that situation and that key leverage spot to know what to do with it, uh, what the right call is. So that, um, that is, it's not just the arm, it, it's the other part of it, too. So this is probably something since he doesn't have a background as a quarterback where, you know, I don't know, Bud's like messing around with the QBs before practice one day and, you know, everybody, oh, hey, you know, Bud thinks he can throw the ball. And next thing you know, <laughs> Andy and Josh and GP are getting together and saying, sure, yeah, maybe we can maybe we can do something here. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No, it, it, it's like in basketball, all the, the big guys want to go out to the three point line and shoot threes yeah. and all the, the little guards want to go in and, and back you down to the, to the hoop, you know, in football, it's the same way. The, you know, the running backs and the receivers think they can be a quarterback just as easily as the quarterback thinks, you know, they can do other things too. So it's, it's all part of it. So you and I were talking before we hit record and, and I had asked you beforehand uh, why, you know, how, how does it get named Colt 45? And, and you had told me that that appears to be lost to history. People, you know, folks can't remember that you talked to how it got named, but we know it's Colt 45 because Josh Henson mentioned it. The offensive coordinator, Josh Henson mentioned it in post-game interviews to the media is, does that matter at that point? Is anyone like, God, Josh, what are you doing? Or is it, eh, we're not going <laughs> to use that again? Or Yeah. I, I think for the most part, I was a little surprised to see him um, throw that out there, but it, it's not a big deal because uh, you know, most of the time with a play like that, that, you're going to run, you're going to run it earlier in the season. And I can't remember if we did or not. I'd have to go back and look. I don't think but, so. Yeah. Um, it, not the specific play, but you run the formation, right. Yeah. To show it on film, give the opponent something to think about. And then you have, um, you know, uh, derivatives off of that initial play. And this was a derivative off of just a quick screen go. Right. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, Bud didn't remember that there was anything significant to the name of the play. It was just a play. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one that's going to go down in Tiger Annals, no doubt. No one's going to forget Colt 45, that's for sure. And, uh, yeah. oh, and, and I'm sorry, I did have one other thing from Bud's perspective. He, he was talking about he gets the pass from Maddie and he's looking downfield trying to make sure he's got the protection he needs to be able to, to take a little bit of time to let LaDamian get loose. And, and Bud said it was happening in such slow motion that he swears LaDamian was just jogging initially. Um, you know, he just, he just felt like in the split seconds that, that a million things are going through your mind. He's, he was thinking, 
well, Damien, you got to go get going, buddy. <laughs> um, but obviously he, Damien had to sell the play first too, because part of his role in that play was to, to make it look like he was coming out to just block for Bud. And then you do a little slip mm-hmm. and he gets past him. Um, and, uh, but anyway, it, the, the play happened the right way. Bud put the ball in the perfect place because Ladamian was covered in the end zone. And I think there wasn't there even a flag thrown on the play, I think for, for pass so, interference. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the guy was draped all over him and, and too much, obviously with, that the flag came out, but uh, Ladamian made that great catch. And man, that was, um, that was so fun to be down on the sideline for people uh, to see that. And I, it was right in the corner where our fans were too. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the wedge of Mizzou fans were right in that corner. So that was a, that was a fun, fun deal. Uh, and, and Missouri closes. I mean, this is where the defense then steps up and that defensive line starts to take over again. Marcus Golden had a huge third down sack on the next drive. Um, Mizzou punted on their next offensive possession, but they killed three and a half minutes off the clock. Mm. And then Randy Ponder picks off Aaron Murray with four minutes and 15 seconds left. So Missouri's feeling pretty good, but they kept their foot on the gas. And Henry Josie ends up scoring, you know, what what really sealed the game, a touchdown with, with 218 left. Uh, Murray threw one more interception, and the Tigers win 41-26. And it was just, you know, I can remember the looks on the faces of, of the players as they're celebrating afterwards. It was, I, I, I would say, a, a confident strong feeling of a sense of accomplishment. I mean, none of, none of those guys were were shocked that they were able to win that game. They really believed in themselves. That didn't take away from their happiness of, of, of upsetting the number seven team in the country <laughs> on the road, but you could tell there was a, a strong sense of validation in that group after that win. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, again, talking with Bud, he, he, he said that um, one thing he felt like that team um, – did really well compared to the previous year. The first year in the SEC, he he did feel like people, um, not not awestruck, if if you will, maybe not quite such a strong term, but uh, definitely, you know, feeling the the I don't know the the tradition of the SEC mm-hmm. and wow, this is Georgia, wow, this is Florida, wow, this is um, you know Tennessee they got through that the first year and I'm not saying that caused wins or losses or whatever, but it was, it was in their minds. And he said yeah. they did such a good job that next year of, Hey, listen, this is Georgia. They're a great team, but guess what? So are we. And, um, you know, you talk about the validation and they definitely felt like they, they definitely felt that everybody did associated with the program, but you know what? They, they also, they expected to, um, uh, um, they expected to go down there and be in the ball game and have a chance to win at the end. Um, and you know, that's, that was their mindset all year. And, and you know what, they celebrated it and they took the good and the bad from it. They learned from it and they parked it, went on to the next one. So that, that the team was just so good at that. And I mean, you and I have been in a lot of locker rooms after games and, and as excited as they were, I even felt like the the celebration was businesslike for this team. Mm-hmm. I mean, they celebrated it. Yeah. They chanted six and zero, which kind of became their their tradition that year was yeah. uh, getting a little dancing going and in, in in the middle of the locker room. But then mm-hmm. they moved on. I mean, yeah. and I can remember interviewing Ladamian. Like, 
I don't know, 90 seconds later after they had just gotten done celebrating and dancing. And he just immediately just, boom, okay, let's talk about the game and, right. and let's get on the plane and let's go home. I mean, yeah. it, it, that, that that team had that great ability to turn it on and off. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it was a business trip, and, and they went down there and they did the job, and, and they, you know, celebrated it. But like you say, they were able to put it behind them and move on to the next one. And, you know, it, my memories are flooding here afterward, after the game. I remember, you know, when we were talking earlier about things guys say in the media yeah max copeland had a had a line that uh um talking about what sherman going down and burning atlanta and it's like (laughs) you know what max that's probably not something we need to be getting into but it was a it was a funny line um by a complete character the just a, a another improbable character you know for that team but um yeah, it was it was it was fun one to celebrate and a happy flight. And by the way, the only guy on a stellar offensive line that never played in the NFL, and and we got to you know we can't you can't talk about that team in 2013 without talking about that offensive line. I mean, it's an NFL offensive line, absolutely. With Morse and Bame and and McGovern, uh, and who am I missing? I'm 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 blanking now. Um, uh, was Justin Britt still on that line? No, no. Wasn't Britt? Uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry, Britt. Yeah, Justin Britt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, four guys that had ex- extensive NFL careers. I mean, Mitch is the highest right. paid center in the history of the NFL and, and still going, as, as we mentioned earlier. And, and those guys, I mean, if, if, if you're going to put 13 over 07, if, to me, that's the difference, is, is, is mm-hmm. a full NFL offensive line that, yeah. that made life so much easier on, on James and then Maddie. And then that running game. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, that's a great point. I, I don't know, man. I would have such a hard time picking between the two. But I, I think 13 is underrated. I know yeah. the 2007 team is special in the hearts of a lot of people, me included. And um, just because it was kind of the first one that took that huge step. And, I, you know, I don't know. Th- this team, to come back from the experience uh, that – that was 2012, um, you know, that makes us really special too. Psychologically, for that team then, but also the program, winning that game, how much did it do for just feeling of belonging, the realization that, yes, this program can do this. This program can go into the toughest place I mean, I, the toughest, one of the toughest. It's hard mm-hmm. to rank them in the SEC when you start talking about Baton Rouge and Tuscaloosa and everything versus Georgia, what have you. To go in and win a game like that, I mean, what did that do, did you feel like? Did it did it feel like, hey, this look, they did it. They can do anything. Yeah, I, I think it was a sense of validation – I think we talked about that before, sense of relief, all those things combined, right? Uh, and one thing that Bud reiterated to me is um, they really approached it as, uh, you know, you, you you take care of your business and that makes the next week all that more important. And they just tried to stack weeks upon weeks upon weeks and to earn the right to play for big stakes at the end of the season. And, um, 
you know, that that's how that team's mindset was. And uh, obviously it worked for him. Missouri goes on to beat Florida the next week. We'll probably end up doing a show on that game at some point. <clears throat> of course, most Mizzou fans know they win the East with a victory over Texas A&M on the final day of the regular season. Uh, dropped the SEC championship game, but went on to win the Cotton Bowl against Oklahoma State uh, in January and finished their second year in the SEC with 12 wins. Um, absolutely amazing turnaround. <clears throat> and I think you could argue um, imperative for the future of the program to 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 show that that they could compete at, at the highest level in the toughest conference. Um, I don't know, Chad. Can 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 you rank it? Wins that you were a part of at Mizzou. Where does where does this uh, this Georgia game go? It's got to be in the top five, I would think. Yeah, I've never really sat down and, and tried to do that. I don't know that I could. Um, you should. It would it, be a it, good it, show. It, it's got to be. Uh, it's got to be top ten, no doubt. Whether it's top five or not, I don't know. Um, Certainly, regular season. If you take out season, all the bowl games. Sure, sure. Um, I think that's fair. Um, it, yeah, you know, those of us who don't play the game, uh, who are part of the team and, and live and die with it, you know, your happiness is dependent on the outcome of a game, which is stupid, but that's that's how that's how we do it. Um, it it's definitely one of the most satisfying. I'll, I'll say that because um, you know, it you just don't ever know what's going to happen, and you can't expect. Um, something like that. But uh, yeah, it, it was, it was very rewarding to be part of it. No doubt. Gary Pinkle's the last person that I would expect to sit down with a pen and paper and jot down his top 10 wins of his, of his career. <laughs> but um, right. as you've talked to him and, you know, we started the show talking about the hall of fame. I mean, how, how, how key was this win? Did he feel in, uh, I don't know if you throw out the legacy word, but in 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 the in the program and, and everything he built, how 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 big do you think he feels this this was? Oh, I, I I'm certain that he feels it was um, one of the bigger wins in his time on the sideline for Mizzou. Um, and from his perspective, I, I I think why it was so important is that. The coaches preached to the team all year long leading up to that game, hey, just focus on the task at hand, right? The the daily grind, getting a little bit better every single day in practice um, and focusing on week to week. And, and again, it, that's boring stuff for people to hear, but that's what they preached. And when the team saw that they could have success doing it that way, that just further cemented that this was the way to go. And the team really bought into that. And and again, we talked about it. That's, you know, one of the reasons why I feel they were so successful is they, they were able to just uh, make it a week by week thing. And this really cemented into the team that this works, it works to do it this way. So let's keep doing it. Hey, that's the way Gary Pinkle did it over his 15 years at Missouri. And it's hard to argue with the success that was achieved. And, you know, to me, that's one of the, the, the reasons why it was so great that that uh, he was inducted into that Hall of Fame recently, and uh, that that a guy like that who did it like that um, didn't didn't need all the bells and whistles, um, let other people do that, uh, was able to be considered a Hall of Famer, and it was because of wins uh, like Georgia in 2013 and seasons like 2013. Chad, it was fun again. We'll uh, we'll we'll talk offline and and we'll get some other topics up. Maybe do another poll and uh, see when we can do another one of these in the not too distant future. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I'd, I'd encourage people to reach out to us on the social channels and tell us what games that they want us to to try and go over. We uh, we enjoy feedback and we had a lot of great feedback from our last show. So I appreciate everyone listening or watching and however you get this, uh, this podcast. Uh, we appreciate your support. I'm at Ben Arnett, KOMU on Twitter. Chad is... Uh, at Chad Mo one C-H-A-D-M-O-1 on Twitter. Hit us up. Let us know what you want to hear about, and we'll put up a poll in the not-too-distant future, and pretty soon we'll have episode three of M-I-Z History. See you next time.